Heavenly Father, that is a story that is repeated throughout our lives many times. And often when we are in the midst of the dark seasons, it's so difficult to see the light. So help us, Lord, to remember that you are a God who is not only powerful, but loving. And all things work together for the good. God causes all things to harmonize for good purposes to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. We worship you, almighty God, today. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 1893 when engineer George Ferris built a machine that bears his name. You guessed it, the Ferris wheel. Can you imagine being introduced to this new contraption and being asked to be one of the first riders? He actually invited a newspaper reporter and his own wife for that inaugural ride. It was on a July day, much like today, hot, but it was extremely windy. So he had the Ferris wheel, Ferris wheel began, and it turned flawlessly even in the midst of a strong breeze. And then he stopped and said to the newspaper reporter and to his wife, get on. Now I imagine there might have been a momentary pause. If it was me, I would have turned and run. Because Ferris wheels aren't my favorite. I'm okay if I'm in one where I can't see. <laughs> but that's not the design of a Ferris wheel. You see, they had to exercise faith in some way to, to get involved in that demonstration that day. Mr. Ferris put faith in his scientific knowledge, in the construction of his own machine and his own design that it would work well and be safe. But the newspaper reporter and Mrs. Ferris had to trust George. They did. They got on. Maybe in the midst of great fears, in trepidation perhaps. And you know what? They invented something that changed the world of entertainment. And they survived. Faith is a lot like that. Faith is trusting in a God we cannot see, who is reliable and trustworthy, and yet still we must trust him. But faith is not a blind leap in the dark. I love the words of John Stott, the theologian, who said faith is a reasoning trust. It's a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of God. Well, if you know God, he's worthy of your trust. And so faith is not a blind leap in the dark, it is a leap into the arms of our wise and perfect Heavenly Father. Augustine taught that God does not expect, expect us to submit our faith to him without reason. But the very limits of human reason make faith necessary. You know, we can only go so far with what we can truly examine and determine and understand and figure out the very limits of human reason, and they are great. 
cause us to trust a reasonable trust in a righteous God. So that's what we're doing through this series this summer. We're looking at some heroes of faith, people who believed in the invisible God and were confident that his promises were true and banked everything on it. Hebrews chapter 11 has been our text, and we've been working our way through the lives of people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. We looked at Joseph last week, and the interesting thing about the life of Joseph is that we looked at the end of his life, one of his last acts of faith, and it was amazing. He said to the Hebrews in Egypt, times might be going well now, but they're going to get difficult in the future, and God is going to come and rescue you, and when he does rescue you and take you to the land he promised our forefathers, I want you to take my bones with you. Remember my bones. Well, the life of Joseph is so fantastic and so full, I wanted to spend a few more days looking at the life of Joseph, so let me invite you to go to Genesis 37, and we're gonna spend at least the next three, maybe four weeks, looking at this amazing young man. When we are introduced to him, that is, in full, in Genesis 37, and he becomes the major character for the most part from chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50. It's important for us to spend a little time looking back at the formation of his faith. In fact, that's a a good title for this sermon today, the formation of Joseph's faith in his early days. Or perhaps another title, a subtitle, and very accurate as well, would be this. What a crazy family. First of all, we're introduced to the adversity that he experienced in his youth. We mentioned last week about Jacob, his father. When Jacob was born, he was given the name heel grasper, which metaphorically means deceiver, one who trips people up. And that's exactly what Jacob did. He lived up to his name. He stole his elder brother's birthright, the birthright that was supposed to go to Esau. He did it through deception. His brother Esau then put a death threat, a promise actually on him. I'm going to kill you as soon as I have the opportunity. So Jacob fled. And when he fled, he went to the the land of the relatives and went looking for a wife and He found a beautiful woman by the name of Rachel, and he wanted to marry her, and his future father-in-law, Laban, said, okay, but you've got to work seven years for her, so that's what he did. He worked for seven years, but then Laban deceived Jacob. And when he went into the wedding chamber that night, it was the older sister, Leah, not the younger sister, Rachel, that he wanted. And what a surprise that must have been when he woke up. But he loved Rachel, and Laban said, you can have Rachel, just work another seven years. And he said, okay, I'll do it gladly. And so he ended up with a couple wives. The family had some unique situations, and his father-in-law Laban cheated Jacob time and time again. In fact, he says, you've cheated me at least 10 times out of my wages in Genesis chapter 31. And it's in this context where Joseph is born. He's the 12th child out of 
13 kids, one is yet to come. He's got 11 brothers and one sister, or is it 10 brothers and one sister, but Joseph comes on the scene as number 12. His brothers are a lot older than he is. And he lives in the land with his grandfather. I don't know about you, uh, but maybe, maybe some of you had a wonderful relationship with your grandfather. I didn't know either one of my grandfathers very well. My mom's dad died when I was five, and my father's father died when I was about 10, but for the last few years, he was out of it, and I was always afraid to be with him because he acted so different. I didn't know my grandfathers well, but some of you have a great relationship with your grandfathers, and that's what I want to build with my grandsons, this wonderful time together of sharing life and teaching and loving and just being there. It's very possible that Joseph had that with Laban, but one night, Jacob, in the middle of the night, says, we're leaving and we're taking off. Can't you see Joseph saying, well, what about granddad? Aren't we going to say goodbye? Aren't we going to kiss him? Where are we going and why? Well, they didn't get very far before Laban caught up with them. And and indeed, he made the scene very dramatic. How come you didn't give me a chance to kiss my grandchildren and my daughters before you left like a thief? Heartbreak number one, huge heartbreak number one, is in Joseph's early life, five, six years old, seven maybe, He's forced to lose someone he dearly loves, someone he's known all his life. But as they flee, they've now got to meet Uncle Esau. And the last time Esau saw Jacob, he said, you're a dead man. And Jacob's afraid to meet him. You've read this story in Genesis 32 and 33. And Esau comes with 400 men. And what you may not see in the story is that little Joseph, now seven or eight, year old, eight years old, is in the group. Is he going to lose his life with the whole family? Put your seven or eight-year-old through that. Terror and dread and the fear of death. We're told in Genesis 33, verse 7, that Joseph and his mother Rachel had to bow before their uncle. But thankfully, he extended mercy. And that was a tremendous, tremendous thing. And in Joseph's young life, he experienced all kinds of domestic conflict. Look at at Genesis 32 and verse 2. This is where the story of Joseph starts in full. Joseph is a young man, we're told, and 17 years old when we get to Genesis 37. He was a shepherd tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his mother's wives. Wait a minute. You mean his father had two wives? Oh, no. Of course not. He had four. And that caused all kinds of problems. You talk about a dysfunctional family. You think yours is bad. Look at this crazy family. And Joseph has experienced all of this, experiencing it all as a young person. But before he gets to the age of seven, his mother dies. Huge heartbreak number two. Have any of you lost a parent at an early age? 
and had to fend through life without the counsel and love of a guiding older person like that. And then there was incest in the family. Thankfully, Joseph wasn't involved, but one of his brothers was sleeping with one of his father's wives. I mean, talk about a crazy family. And Joseph is living in all of this adversity. So don't tell me you've had a rough life and that's why you're a victim of circumstance and that's why you're not following God and that's why you're not trusting God because Joseph would say, ridiculous. A.W. Tozer has written many books, a great pastor who pastored in Chicago and Canada with the Missionary Alliance denomination wrote articles on a regular basis. They were formed into books, and there's about a dozen of them that are just fantastic. In one of the books called The Root of the Righteous, he said this. Listen closely. The devil, things, and people being what they are, it is necessary for God to use the hammer, the file, and the furnace in his holy work of preparing a Christian for true maturity. He took the hammer, the file, and the furnace from the writings of Samuel Rutherford. He says it's necessary, things being as they are, for God to use these tools to make us into godly people. And then he said this. This is a classic statement. It is doubtful whether God can bless a person greatly until he has heard him deeply. It is doubtful that God can bless you greatly until he has hurt you deeply. Have you ever been hurt deeply? And that's the story of Joseph in those first 17 years. But then we notice something interesting here in chapter 37. We'll call it the partiality of his father. For we read in verse 3, Now Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his other sons. Now, if you want a surefire formula to ruin your family, just love one kid over the other. Uh, I've got a dear friend who uh, has five children, and he has secretly, for a long time, told each one, now I want you to know that you are my favorite. Now, he did this, I'm not sure whether he let the others know, but when they got older, they realized that all of the kids were being told privately, now I want you to know that you are my favorite. That's a little different than what Jacob was doing. Jacob said to Joseph, you're my favorite, and he meant it. He loved him more because he was the son of his favorite wife. That's a problem. (laughs) And because he was the son of his old age. And maybe we ought to give him a little space here because as the other sons are up and gone and building their own families, here the baby is still around and don't you want to hang on to that baby a little longer? That's kind of natural. But to make matters worse, the Bible tells him because he had been born to him in his old age, he loved him more, and so he gave him a richly ornamented robe. Now, many people are familiar with the life of Joseph because he is one of the most famous characters in the Old Testament. 
Many others who've never read their Bibles are familiar with Joseph because of the Broadway play by Timothy Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber about the technicolored coat. And old translations talk about being a coat of many colors, and it might have had colors, but it appears that the Hebrew actually refers to a coat that was ornamented with jewels and many colors. It was ostentatious. It was provocative. In fact, it's probably the same coat that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that was given by a king to his virgin daughters and set them apart from the rest of the family. It was a, I like Joseph more than you guys in your face coat. How would you like to wear that in front of your brothers? The problem is, you might have liked it. Right? But the Bible tells us that his brothers hated him even more. Verse 4, when his brothers saw their father loved him more, saw the coat, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to Joseph. And so you've got the animosity of his brothers. In fact, the scripture tells us four different times. Verse 5, they hated him. Later on, Verse 8, they hated him even more. The hatred was just building. Why did they hate him? Well, you, always, you have to go back really to verse 2 and notice that Joseph brought back to his dad a bad report about his elder brother. Now, there's a way to bring back a report and there's a way to bring back a bad report like a tattletale. I can't tell you what Joseph did except... He talked about his older brothers in such a way that they knew the message came from him and hated him because of it. They hated him because of his father's favoritism. They hated him because of the coat. And they hated him because of his dreams. You say, what dreams? Well, verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And he told it to his brothers. Verse 7, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed to the ground. You want to get along well with your brothers, your siblings? Just tell them a story like that. But it wasn't one dream. It was the second one. There was another dream, verse 9 dealing with the celestial planets. And all of this spoke about Joseph being elevated above his brothers, and when he told him the dreams, they hated him even more. And so one day, his father sends Joseph out to see how his brothers are doing. It's a 50-mile trip. It's a rather dangerous trip. By the way, it's in the land of Shechem, and if you go back to Genesis 34, you'll realize that Joseph's brothers killed some of the Shechemites. It was a horrible situation that happened their family. Uh, again, it was an uh, immoral situation, and they killed the Shechemites, so they're going back to a territory where there might be revenge. And so Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go see how your, how your brothers are doing, if they're still alive, if, if they're faring well. And as Joseph takes this journey, a plot is born. Look at verse 18. The brothers see Joseph in a distance, and before he reaches them, they plotted to kill him. They've been wanting to take his life for a long time, at least be rid of him, but they didn't have opportunity until now. Please understand this, that if you 
have a difficult life and you find out that you even have the hatred of your own family, that evil motives and corrupt minds cannot keep you from God's plan for your life. Because somehow, Joseph is going to get through all of this. Reuben to the rescue, the oldest one who had been out of his father's favor because he was the one involved with incense. Instead of killing, the brother said, hey, let's throw him into this cistern. And and it was stone carved out of rock. You've seen them if you've traveled at all in the Middle East. They're everywhere. And they threw him into one of these uh, caves or or, uh, a hole in the ground. And they decided that they would sell him. They sold him like a slave. The common price of a slave was 20 pieces of silver. And that's what they sold him for. And then the scripture says in verse 25, they threw him in the cistern and they just went about their meal. Nine grown men treating an unsuspecting brother with such hatred and animosity that they can decide to kill him or just sell him as a slave and go about their meal. We fill in the story from Psalm 105. It says that Joseph had his feet bruised with shackles and his neck was put in irons. I think it probably started here when he was taken as a slave all the way down to the land of Egypt and then sold to Potiphar as a slave in the household. The boys return and they tell their father that Joseph must have been killed by an animal and they bring back the multicolored coat and it's stained with the blood taken from an animal but meant to be Joseph's blood. And isn't it interesting that the man Jacob who deceived his father by dressing up in animal skins is now deceived by his sons with the blood of an animal pretending to be his favorite son Joseph. And Jacob is never the same. He mourns for the rest of his life. And Joseph is sold into Egypt and then placed in a jail and then forgotten, get this, for 13 years. I'm okay if the hammer and the file and the furnace are temporary, but 13 years in the prime of your life from 17 to age 30. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, all people are puzzles until we at last find some word or act that gives us the key to that man or that woman. And then straightway, all of their words and all of their actions lie open before us. All people are puzzles until you see the key to their life that begins to make sense of who they are and what they do. And for Joseph... That key is given to us in chapter 38. For four times in chapter 38, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. Or 39, excuse me, chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2. All the way down to verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph. 
And it's so powerful, it's repeated in the New Testament. This indeed is the key that Joseph had the presence of God in the midst of all of this difficulty. So how is our hero doing so far? (laughs) Grows up in a dysfunctional family, lost his mother at an early age, hated by his siblings, treated unjustly, sold into slavery, totally forgotten for years. How's he doing? By the way, if you were going to make a man or a a woman of God, would you follow this pattern? Let's see. I'll put him into the worst situation I can find and let let him suffer in jail and be treated unjustly and lose his loved ones and Every joy or trial falleth from above. Traced upon our dial, our life, by the Son of love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do, and they who trust him wholly, find him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. The key to Joseph's life, you have it already before you, is the sovereignty of God. He trusted God. God was with him. Divine providence followed him. What is divine providence? It is the divine energy of God carrying over all his creation, operative in all that's going on, and working out his perfect will in such a way that we don't lose our human responsibility, but in the end, his perfect will is accomplished. The providential care of God. God has not forgotten one of you. And if I were in jail for 13 days, I would think God had forgotten me, let alone for over a decade. But it was the sovereignty of God that Joseph was clinging to with all of his heart and with all of his might. He was confident that God was in control. Look at this verse of Scripture from the book of Genesis, chapter 45. Genesis 45 and verse 5. This is when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. You know the story. After he's in jail, he's promoted to prime minister in Egypt. His brothers come looking for food because there's a famine. They don't know it's Joseph. But when he finally reveals to his brothers that he's the prime minister, this is what he says to them. He says, don't be distressed. Don't be angry at yourselves for selling me so long ago. Because it was God who sent me ahead of you to save your lives. Understand this. God is on a mission to save souls. And everything that goes on in this world is connected to that great mission. And even the wickedness of man can praise him. And all things work together for good to those who love God. Because God is causing all things to work together for good. And those things meant to harm us can be used to save us or through us to save others around us. And two verses later in chapter 45, he says the same thing again. 
God sent me here. Can you say that in the midst of your trial? And then there is, of course, the classic verse at the end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50 and verse 20, and many of you know this by heart. But as for you, this is when Jacob dies and the brothers are afraid now that after all these years, Joseph is going to go for revenge. And he says, listen, as for you, what you did was wrong. You meant it for evil. You intended to harm me. But God meant it for good. And what was the purpose? The same thing we mentioned in chapter 45, this divine mission of saving lives. Jesus was sent to this earth And people hated him and mistreated him and killed him. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the saving of all who would believe. So in the midst of all of the problems, there was this presence of God that Joseph was clinging to and empowered him to endure all the difficulties. And he was confident that someday God would avenge his sorrow. Someday God would vindicate his character. And that is indeed true for all of us. It may not happen in this life, but God will vindicate his people. And God's plan will be victorious, triumphant. Joseph was amazingly resilient and maintained his integrity because he had faith in God and his word. What word? The dreams. There might have been others, but we know of the dreams. I'm going to raise you up even above your brothers, and they're going to bow down before you, and it's all so that you can save lives. There was a pastor many years ago who was pastoring in the state of Mississippi. His wife was pregnant with her fourth child. And then complications set in. Set in. During the birth and the delivery, both the baby and the wife died. And the father was so brokenhearted. At the funeral, A.M. Overton sat in the pew while another pastor was leading the funeral service. But Overton had a rough time concentrating. He began to jot down and write on some paper, some thoughts. And at the end of the funeral service, he came up to the pastor, thanked the pastor for the message. And the pastor said, I saw you writing. What were you writing? And he handed him some notes. And this is what it said. My father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad to know he maketh no mistakes. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade and fall. Yet still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for he has planned it all. Though dark the night and it may seem the day will never break, I'll place my faith, my faith, my hope in Christ. He maketh no mistake. 
There's so much now that I cannot see. My eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to him. For by and by, the fog will lift and plain it all he'll make. Though all the way, though dark to me, God made not one mistake. Let's pray. Father, I'm speaking to some dear people who are going through unbelievable sorrow and pain. It's the hammer and the file and the furnace. And in their prayers, it seems like you're not answering. And in their trials, it seems that you're absent. Lord, it seems that you don't care. But from the promises of the word and the life of Joseph, we are convinced that you are a God who's in control of all this world and you care for us more than you care for, than we care for ourselves. And you have a plan. And the path may be difficult. But in the end, it is for your glory and our good and the salvation of the souls of those around us. So come what may, may we say with Overton, you never make a mistake. And may we learn to place our faith, our hope, in Christ and Christ alone. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed.